welcome to the complete episode 10 uh, X in Super Bowl terms. Uh, this is uh, Barry Linden this time around. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Matt Gasteyer. And as always, I'm here with uh, my co-host, Travis Trudell. How you doing, Travis? Good. How's it going, Matt? Very excited. This is a good one. Uh, and and, good one. and we're in double digits now, so... Uh, to celebrate, I've hidden a ribbon somewhere on me. Um, the first person to find I, it, uh, I don't. I don't know if prize. I can find it, Matt. I don't. I don't know if I can. I don't think I have the courage to. Okay, it's in your chest. We'll see. We'll see how the conversation goes. Uh, and we have a uh, a guest uh, per usual, um, and uh, this time it is Dave Eves. Dave, Hello. how are you? I'm. I'm just swell. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, why don't good. you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Oh, about me. Um, yeah, you. Well, oh, geez, my favorite topic. I am a person who likes to watch lots of movies. Um, if you know me, it's probably through some of the Facebook groups that you guys are both very active parts of or running those groups or through Twitter where I'm spending most of my free time uh, while watching movies. Um, I went to school to, to learn about making movies, but I don't do that as much because that's expensive. Uh, I do it when I can, but uh, watching movies is much cheaper, so I do that a lot as well. Well, it depends on, you know, what what movies you're watching and whether you own them or not, how cheap This the, is true. I be. guarantee, looking back at my Criterion shelf, I probably could have made several short films uh, <laughs> for the money that I spent on buying those Blu-rays, but what are you going to do? So, so the first, uh, the first thing we do uh, as as the orientation for the guest is, uh, you know, this is this season is a about Stanley Kubrick. Um, so, if you could just say a few words about uh, your relationship to Kubrick's movies, uh, kind of how you got started with them, and uh, sort of how it has evolved over the years. So, I would say that Stanley Kubrick's movies played a very formative role in my relationship with like getting more into movies and more I don't want to say like more to art movies but more into being what you could say a cinephile I remember watching 2001 a space odyssey when I was in my teenage years because um, I really like space and I really like movies and that is certainly perhaps not what the average 15 year old would find exciting um, but I think because of my combination of enjoying space and movies, it really drew me in. Uh, and by discovering that, I kind of fell more into more of his films, more into things like Kurosawa, things like Bergman. Um, but I could also say that the relationship with, with uh, not Bergman, Kurosawa, uh, oh my goodness, Kubrick, I got there eventually, <laughs> evolves just kind of as you get older. Because I feel like a lot of people kind of discover Kubrick as their first like big uh artsy director right um especially in high school years I, I i would say that oftentimes you can associate him with like oh this person's favorite director is kubrick it's because they haven't really watched many movies they only watch these this guy's movies but as you get older and you keep watching them you realize exactly why they have such staying power and why so many people really cling to them early on in their like cinematic education because they're just really really good and, and I, I think it's very also rare to, to get maybe like an American, someone that makes movies in English that has this level of perfectionism, this level of control, this level of auteurism uh, that is within more recent times, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, 
well, I, I think the first thing uh, to get into the movie um, that I want to ask you about, because I, I know, you know, we had discussed this film uh, when it was announced um, mm -hmm. uh, for Criterion uh, last year, um, how it was kind of in the middle of the pack for you, uh, mm -hmm. for Kubrick. Um, and it was partially just because you had only seen it once. Uh, I, I would know, even go as far ago. to say as that it wasn't at the middle of the pack. It was probably at the bottom of the pack for me. Okay. When I first watched it, I was a freshman in college. I had rented the DVD. I watched it on a tiny laptop and uh, yeah. was incredibly bored. I was bored for the entire three hours. <laughs> I think there were a few times where I was like, let's just make the screen a little bit smaller and like look at Facebook or something. And it led to a very funny, um, funny to me at least, uh, relationship with the movie because there were several times during the movie where I heard the tune of Pomp and Circumstance. I thought that's very weird that this theme just keeps coming up. It fit because it's still classical. It wasn't until Pomp and Circumstance started playing over top of another song that I realized there was a pop-up ad on my computer <laughs> that would just recycle <laughs> Pomp and Circumstance about every half an hour or so. <laughs> I feel like that uh, is going to be in the next Godard film. There's going to be a pop-up ad in the background. You know what? That that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So so why don't you... Uh, I, I mean, I know the... Uh, the the spoiler of this story, but why don't you tell, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your experience of watching it. Um, when the, uh, when the Blu-ray was released. So watching it on Blu-ray on a bigger screen without any pop-up ads in the background <laughs> and also being a bit older and wiser. Um, I now really, really like this movie. It clicked for me. It feels, I don't know. It almost feels like the most Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick movie to a degree. I, I, I don't know if I could rank it as my, favorite but it's definitely way up there now it definitely i did a, a full 180 on this and really love this film and can't get enough of it dave i'm right there with you that was the same with me i saw it when i was <clears throat> a freshman in college probably even earlier the first time i saw it mm -hmm. and then i watched it again when i bought that a uh, dvd box set uh, back in the day with all the white covers mm -hmm. and i was kind of like Boersville. I, I didn't I didn't understand. I didn't connect. Mm -hmm. And this this viewing, I was just mesmerized. I was engrossed with the film. I completely changed my opinion about it. Uh yeah. it's fantastic. And, and I love that I love that films can do that and especially like a film like this, which, you know, I think a lot of people it grows on them, which you know, I'm sure we'll talk about as we uh, get through the whole movie. Yeah, and and I think the enjoyment of the film goes more beyond just the visuals because this is obviously a very beautiful film. Being able to see a nice restoration of it on a big screen certainly helps, but the qualities that I saw in it when I was older are the more subtle nuances, the things that I easily could have seen with it really tiny on my laptop screen while surfing the internet but didn't because I just wasn't aware, I wasn't paying enough attention, or I was just too immature to really notice it. Yeah, I think I think the costume drama aspect of it is something that um, uh, obscures for a lot of people on a first watch the the subtle nuances that you're talking about. People is there a more of... is there a more tedious genre for an right. eighteen year old that likes Clockwork Orange in yeah. period costume drama? Right, right. And I, I think the, the sort of irony of it is that 
in a lot of ways, this movie is most similar to Clockwork Orange of any of Kubrick's films. Yeah, um, I'd say that. <laughs> and uh, and yet, you know, couldn't be more different on a surface uh, surface level. Um, yeah, I mean, I uh, this is my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie. It's one of my, you know, I if I if I had a sight and sound list, this would go on it. Um, I I think it's uh, beyond comprehension that he was able to create this film. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I had a similar experience, although a smaller gap between uh, viewings that changed my opinion about this movie. Hmm. Um, I watched it, the first time I watched it was the Snapper Case uh, box set um, when, I was, uh, when I was a teenager. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I had the same response that everybody has at that age, which is kind of like a beautiful movie. It seems like Kubrick really just all he wanted to do was shoot a movie with a lot of, uh, natural looking light, uh, and candlelight and, uh, put, didn't really care about the story at all and just sort of slapped some novel into a screenplay and called it a day. Um, and then watched it five or so years later and uh just laughed through the entire thing and was just super engaged with it um and really just had a 180 uh on on my impression of it and it grew even stronger uh in reflecting on it um and thinking about it more um and i was lucky enough to see a uh 35 millimeter print of it last year uh, at the MFA here in Boston, uh, was not in great shape, but seeing it on film was really, uh, a wonderful experience and was just totally, um, enraptured for the three hours. Um, you know, like almost literally sitting on the edge of my seat, just so involved in this movie, the idea that this, and, and I was the first time I watched it so I'm not saying anything about you guys but the idea that anybody would think of this movie as boring is so foreign to me now it's so engaging constantly and uh and uh, you know just watching it this time in this beautiful uh restoration um just cemented that uh that perception for me that this is really um an extraordinary film and uh I'm really excited to uh to talk about it here um, yeah, I'd, I'd say usually when we're when we're watching these films that we've been doing this this year, uh, I, I take notes as I'm watching the film, like themes and thoughts and shots and stuff like that. And this is one of the films that like I couldn't take notes during it because I was just so yeah. <laughs> engaged. And it was one of those like like you were saying a couple minutes ago where like you like to think about it after it's done. Like this is the this is the one film where. I couldn't take notes while I was watching it. And then afterwards I sat down like a day later and filled like five pages. Like I was just like everything I could, everything that was just going through my head, like for the past like few days, just kind of like, it was so clear, like the things that I wanted to discuss and the things that uh, interested me and the shots that just burned in my brain. Like it was, this is a film that, gives you a perfect gauge of your cinema acumen in terms of where you are in your cinema knowledge in terms of uh, viewability. I think I think this is a good touchstone because as you start to get a stronger sense of 
world cinema, of different types of cinema, slow cinema, like just all that stuff, this movie starts to reveal itself more and more the deeper you go into watching movies. And I think that's part of what it was for me is I didn't have a, I did not have a deep, you know, a deep bench when it came to films when I first saw it. Like, I, you know, I was watching like normal Hollywood fare, you know, 80s movies at the time and, you know, a couple here and there uh, foreign films, but nothing too complex. And so this movie just right over my head. And I think yeah. this is a great, great film to uh, revisit. Well, I think part of that is is that when you first get into movies, uh, especially as an American, um, you're watching a movie for for a story, and you're watching it for the way that the story is told uh, to a certain degree. That's kind of the next level that you go up. Um, and both of those things, I mean, I think the way that the story is told is is pretty interesting here, and we'll get into that. But I think ultimately that's not really what the movie is about and it's not the most sort of engaging elements of this movie you know even within the context of the story the characters and their motivations and their sort of underlying psychology are much more interesting than what's happening on screen if you told just the basic story of what happens to Barry Lyndon over the course of this movie it's not exceptional or um interest uh, particularly interesting in any way and could be made into an incredibly boring conventional costume drama a 10-part series on the bbc yeah exactly um well before we we start talking about it too much uh if if you could set up a little bit travis of just kind of why kubrick uh made this film next after Clockwork Orange, uh, just the, the quick kind of Wikipedia. Yeah, for sure. So uh, he finished Clockwork Orange, and he was still hot to trot wanting to make Napoleon. Like, he still, he had so much of the prep work done and so much of his thoughts and ideas into making his epic costume drama that he wanted to make. Um, but once again, the financing wasn't there, and he looked at this as an opportunity to kind of and and at this point he had he's kind of now pigeonholing himself as a futurist so from uh you know Dr. Strangelove and you know 2001 Clockwork Orange he's starting to be kind of like put into the sci-fi hole and he wanted to use this as a showcase to show that he could make a period costume piece in hopes that this would segue into Napoleon um, I don't think he had completely given up on the idea of making Napoleon, and I think this was his way of kind of saying, I can do this. Um, he s- grabbed the book from uh, Thackeray. Um, it was a serialized novel, and then it was collected into a final work, and it was The Life and Times of Barry Lyndon. And he really liked the themes that are going on in the book, um, themes that we'll talk about throughout the rest of this episode that um, are very Kubrickian in everything that he has ever done. And uh, he started the project. Uh, this was the first one where he really started his way too long pre-production. But it comes, everything comes out. He spent 15 months just in pre-pro on this film. 
the script was barely ready for time of shooting. He basically just went from the book for most of it. He knew what he wanted to get, and he knew that uh, a lot of the dialogue was going to be very uh, small and short, and you know the pieces that really were strong he could pull out as they were going. And uh, but yeah, it was 15 months of preparation. The costume designs—they were pulling stuff from the museums and using them as costumes. Uh, authenticity and study of paintings that you know from that time period it, they really really um got him going in terms of what he was doing with this film uh filmed it for about a year he they started in ireland and they were shooting there um and then he uh, received a message that he was going to be kidnapped uh there were threats <laughs> to him <laughs> saying uh, hey we're going to come kidnap you which is kind of funny, you know. You want to don't want to telegraph that, but I guess that was their their goal. Um, and he just said, I think one of the producers says he just said, "Well, it's not worth this." And then they just went back to England and uh, finished the rest. Of, yeah, that's great. You know, there is no like screw them. We're making our movie. It was yes. just like, yeah, no, it's not worth it. Let's go back and went back to England, uh, finished the film. Uh, in his contract, he got a year to edit this movie. Um, which is a rarity, and he used every bit of it, and uh, yeah, uh, it it came out. It didn't. Ha- it had mixed reviews. Uh, there were some critics that absolutely fawned over it. Some people that just didn't get it and didn't like it. And he he was very hurt by that. Once again, his his uh, he put something out there that was really unique, really special and this is after all the critical uh, destruction that came off of clockwork orange about uh, his intent and the themes once again he's he felt that he's not doing anything right and people don't i don't understand why people don't like these films and yeah and that kind of led into i think the choices for why he was picking his next film for sure um but yeah so yeah that's that's the the long and short of it Pauline Kael's review uh, of this film is one of my top five reasons that I hate Pauline Kael. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I, I don't know what movie she thought she was watching, but I think she thought she was watching Tom Jones, if I'm being totally honest. Like, <laughs> I think that she she th- she refused to see it in any way other than that she would rather be watching Tom Jones. Um and yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the interesting things that they point out, uh, I think that Cement points out in the extra on uh, the uh, the Criterion disc, um, is that uh, he was never afraid of touching his films after they had been released. You know, he cut a, a substantial um, part of both 2001 and The Shining after release um, because of the reception uh, to those films. And yet this is his longest film outside of, um, Spartacus, uh, which, you know, he doesn't really consider it to be his movie. Um, and despite the fact that it, uh, is uh, his least popular movie, um, post Dr. Strangelove in kind of the, the classic Kubrick range, um, he never touched it when it was finished. And I think that that really points to, um, even though he was, I think, confused and disappointed in the response to the movie initially, um, he he really had faith in what he had produced and was was proud of it. 
um, and was confident that uh, he didn't need to change it, that there wasn't anything that he could have done to make it better, um, uh, which is especially interesting in comparison to 2001 because it, it received a lot of the same criticisms of kind of slow pacing, loose editing, um, unnecessary scenes that uh, that 2001 received after its premiere. And yet uh, he had real confidence in what he had put on the screen. And it's a good thing that he did because uh, I think there's not a wasted minute here. Um, I think uh, I think the first thing I, I want to talk about is the narration because I think it kind of informs the way you look at this movie depending on how you receive the narration um, and th there's there's definitely a number of kind of schools of thought on the narration of this movie uh, it's very sort of that that droll British uh, almost aristocratic uh, narration um, some people have referred to it as omniscient but I don't really think it is omniscient. Um, it, it definitely seems like a real person is talking as opposed to a um, kind of godlike voice. Um, and so I was curious kind of where you guys fall on the narration in terms of it being um, an unreliable narrator versus somebody who is providing um, outside objective information that helps to fill in the details of the story that we're seeing on screen. Dave, uh, uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. I, I like the narrator. The, the narrator strikes me as someone who is trying to tell as much of the story as is available to him long after the fact, but maybe is not as modern as we are as a viewer. They kind of seem somewhat like they're still in that world of Barry Lyndon, yeah. but they never knew him. They're trying, like, like there's passages where they're just reading like a eulogy and it just fades out. He is doing the best he can with the information he has available. And I think it adds a level of irony as well uh, that I think adds to the humor of it. And I think the droll nature of it just amplifies that uh, like a hundred times. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I enjoy the narration. Um, I think it. I think he's finally hit the proper tone and the proper amount of narration needed. I think it's been hit or miss in his in the other films. Like sometimes it's just the opening, just to give us a sense of what this world is, or like we talked about in Clockwork Orange, um, it's used as a as an insight into Alex's head. Where this one is is removed and. It feels his narration feels like in older books, like uh, say like Jonathan Swift or uh, I'm trying to remember some of the others. You have that kind of uh, this is the chapter on which all of this happens, and then you go into reading that chapter. You have those chapter titles. Um, right. That's what this narration feels like. It was mm -hmm. like, and this is where Barry goes and does this, and this person dies, and he moves on into the army, and then you watch that happen. And I like that because uh, I think it was Hitchcock has this great bit about there's a difference between tension yes. and surprise. And I think without the narration, you lose all the all the narrative tension in this film without that narration. Because, because of the way he sets up each set with what he talks about, 
you are now looking for the things which lead to the ending of what the narrator has discussed. So, mm-hmm. you know, the scene of the, uh, the the young boy dying, where there it's a simple act of them playing croquet in the yard, and he says, and this would be, he will go without having a child or a wife and all this stuff. And you're just like, oh. And now your ears perk up, and you start to watch the scene for more depth and more... Uh, you know, to try to piece together like what what are the re- what are the chain reactions or what are the things that lead us to this uh, this ending? And I think that's where the narration works spectacularly in this film is because it is the thing that is creating the dramatic tension in the film, while the other film concerns itself with the societal uh, nature of what's going on. Yeah, I yeah the Hitchcock thing came to mind for me as well just the the idea of um the 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 example he uses is uh two people having a conversation and there's a bomb under the table if you only have the bomb explode at the end it's surprising but if you show the bomb at the beginning then every word that they say is more interesting to you because you don't know when that bomb's going to go off um and yeah i i think that that is a uh very useful device here that was completely misunderstood by um uh critics at the time um, you go ahead you can say pauline kale <laughs> <laughs> uh but i think uh the other thing about the the narration well there's like 80 things about the narration in this movie <laughs> but i think one thing i i found really interesting you know we had talked about um on the last episode um our our guest uh ken james had had mentioned the idea that uh, Alex was telling the story as an older version of himself in the in the um, milk bar uh, recounting what had happened to him uh, and this feels like one of the uh, kind of maybe perhaps the son or grandson of one of the aristocrats in this movie is telling the story of Barry Lyndon to somebody in court or you know reclining on a chair in the yard uh like the story that's told uh, in in the film, um, the story of this this young upstart that tried to uh, wrestle his way into the aristocracy, um, and uh, I think looking at it that way is how it becomes a question of whether it how much you need to believe what he's saying and how correct he is in some of the uh, gaps that he's filling in. You know, there's uh, so many moments when he reads into Barry's head kind of why he does what he does, and we don't see any of that on the screen. So there's nothing to... We basically have to rely on him and believe him in order to believe that 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 is the true motivation behind what Barry is doing, or that is the true reason why what's happening is happening. Um, And I think the first time, partially because he's British and we're American, like, he just seems authoritative. So you're like, oh, you know, we're used to, like, the British guy coming in with the voiceover and explaining everything. And we're like, oh, of course, he's British, so he must know what he's talking about. So the first time you watch this, you really think of him as omniscient and, and as somebody who is really telling it like it is. And we get to find out all of the things that are are really happening um, behind the scenes but the more I watch this movie the more he kind of seems like he's full of shit like he doesn't (laughs) and he's so he 
you know, at first it's like he's talking about how his father would have made a good lawyer and he 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 seems like on Barry's side, but he's not really on he kind of hates Barry and definitely has like the same condescending attitude towards him that the aristocracy has in the movie. So it's just like another piling on of of like people preventing this guy from getting what he wants because he is gutter trash to them and the more i listen to him the more i get that feeling that he doesn't really like at one point he describes soldiers as food for the powder and you know when i (laughs) when i hear that i think like oh that's just the most kubrickian thing i could possibly think of um oh yeah and that and the uh after Barry spends a few days with the German woman after he's right. running away and he t- like the narrator totally slut shames her. Yes. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just like you had this tender moment between two people lost, not having anyone or anything. They spend some time together, which is very, you know, it's, it is quite touching like this moment that he kind of grows up a bit more and she seeks comfort. And then the narrator basically says, Oh, and she's done this a hundred times. Ha ha ha. Right. <laughs> and it's it's like, oh come on, you undercutting son of a bitch. <laughs> and 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 the way he tosses aside both of those things, like he just sort of was just like it, it all it seems sort of wry and ironic and, and satirical, but the way he delivers it, it's really it's more just like that's how he thinks that's how he views the world. Like soldiers are food for the powder. Um and so the separation between what Kubrick thinks and what the narrator thinks becomes greater uh, as I kind of watch watch and rewatch this movie. Um, and it, he becomes more like the the irony initially seems to be between what he's saying and what's happening on screen. But it, it becomes the irony becomes more what Kubrick thinks and what the narrator thinks um, and sort of what we as viewers think um, as I continue to watch this movie and, and rewatch it. The other thing I wanted to say about the uh, narration is that Kubrick doesn't um, have a very good explanation for why he switches from first person, which is how the book is written, to third person. Uh, he The way he describes it is that he... Uh, wanted third person narration so that he could fill in the exposition that was uh, not that he didn't want to have in lines of dialogue in the movie um, and to sort of condense the events so that the you know he was able to take a full book and make it into a movie but you can do that just as easily with Barry Lyndon recounting what happened he can provide that exposition just as easily and it's weird because uh, when he set out to make the movie, he never had a narration in mind. Like, the narration came in the editing process after they tried, like, three or four different things. Yeah. I mean, it, like, they, they tried title cards at the beginning of each scene, kind of like a uh, like chapters. And that was slowed the pace of the film down, like, tremendously. Then they tried, I think they tried the uh, the first person narration, and he didn't like how that like he didn't like the tone of it or something like that. I, I, I can it, just see that ruining the whole tone of the movie. Oh yeah. If, for if sure. we're getting it from his standpoint, cause he's, it's almost like he, cause he's not in control of his destiny. He's just kind of piddling along. He's, 
going from one place to the next. And the only reason he's ever able to succeed at all is because of luck. And that same stroke of events is how he just loses everything. I, I Having the narration be from this, um, not, not so much omniscient, but have it from this perspective of the aristocracy, as you were saying, it's just furthering, like, that this cruel world that he's not a part of. Yeah, it's just the brutal fatalism of it, of yeah. it all. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, uh, and, you know, and to to have Barry Lyndon, it's too much like Clockwork Orange yeah. again. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the only way that I think Barry could, could talk about himself would be in a braggadocious, mm-hmm. I'm the best, check this out kind of way, which would, yeah, completely take away from the tone and the rest of the film. And it's great that, you know, I think Kubrick realized that and changed and went to something else and tried again. And I find that fascinating that that isn't something, because it's so part of the film that I find it fascinating that that was something that was added in the last, you know, the last effort. You know, it's like, wow, like this is so integral to the uh, telling of this story. I can't believe this wasn't something that was there from the beginning. Well, I think that's where the, like the the combination of the Clockwork Orange uh, and and this film, like the comparison, comes together. You know, obviously um, uh, Ryan O'Neill's performance and Malcolm McDowell's performance are two, two completely opposite and sort of <laughs> two sides of the same coin in a way. Like, uh, you know, one's just like bonkers off the wall. Like you would compare Malcolm McDowell's performance in this much more to. Um, uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining, whereas Ryan O'Neill's a little bit more like James Mason in Lolita. Um, but I, but I think that if you removed the narration from Clockwork Orange and put in, you know, for example, a police officer or the uh, the minister recounting what happened to Alex, you would get, you would end up with a similar sense that you don't really understand Alex's motivations or sort of why he's doing what he's doing. And I think that aspect of it is part of why I think this movie succeeds in a lot of the ways that Clockwork Orange doesn't, because that complexity and depth of character is much more interesting here than the kind of just, you know, uh, brute force, uh, aggressive, uh, ultraviolence of Clockwork Orange. I, I I was going to say that that if you were to have Barry Lyndon narrating his own story, the only way to really make it work, I think, within the tone, is if everything he says is wrong on the screen. He says, "Oh, I succeeded in this in in, in this duel w- w- with the uh, with the soldier," and you see him get like completely beat down. I think right. it's the only way to kind of maintain that similar tone and execute that sort of roguish, braggish nature especially knowing kind of how his fate turns out. I, I think it's the only way it could have potentially worked. Yeah, like in, in the same way that he tells his stories to his son about things he's right. done. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah, in the in the essay um, for, uh, for the Criterion release, um, Jeffrey O'Brien says uh, something that really struck me. Um, he I, and I have it here. He said uh, the novel's literary effectiveness, such as it is, resides in the ironic contrast cra- contrast between Barry's alternately boastful and self pitying grandiloquence and the sordid realities the reader so easily discerns. Lest the point be missed, Thackeray also makes use of a supposed editor of Barry's manuscript, who on occasion spells out the obvious contradictions. This struck me so much as Lolita 
that I was kind of just taken aback. And to me, like, you know, I mean, it, Lolita opens with an editor's note. Um, there's, and of course, like the, the, uh, the sort of, um, cruelty of what, um, uh, Humbert is doing kind of seeps through his casual offhand, com uh, you know, conversation about the, uh, his romantic conquest, quote unquote. Um, and, uh, and it, it really just reminded me like how much this, this movie feels like a success in the way that Lolita and that Kubrick was striving for in Lolita and Clockwork Orange get hitting that right note of, um, a sort of, um, mysterious, uh, um, protagonist that is neither a hero or an anti-hero, um, and kind of matching that with an ironic distance, um, for the viewer and sort of how that relates to their moves through, um, society and kind of, uh, the, the, the external pressures on their, um, personal ambitions. I'm, I'm, I'm nodding, realizing you can't see me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I can, I, I can see that a lot. Um, I think, I think that the, you know, the, the use of the narrator, I mean, the way he had, the way he adapts the uh, the story in here, and using that editorial kind of uh, that editorial uh, voice is, you know, like we said, like it it works for the film, and it works for the way that uh, the the way that the uh, the tone is set because it does offset the uh, it does offset our hero, or our protagonist, in the in the way that. Uh, um, makes him more a thing of fascination to behold as opposed to a character to relate to. Um, I think that's one of the things that I had a problem with with Lolita is that the narration for that film is from the right is from the first person. And so like the motivations and his thoughts and his desires, um, once again, I can't relate to them because, you know, and we talked about that in great depth in the Lolita episode, um, cause I can't relate to his goal. And so in this film, the goal is more relatable in which is I want to bring myself out of the situation I'm in and ascend, um, so I could be treated in this society more as a human, because obviously there is a great class divide at this time. And this is before we start, you know, we start with the Industrial Revolution and the working class and all that stuff. So I think the, the choice of having an editorial voice in this um, helps to uh, stabilize, but also give a deeper uh, view into the class structure of what this film is trying to say, if that makes any sense. I think it says so much just by like treating like what what a preposterous idea to try to raise one's station. <laughs> what gall has this man have to try to do that? And look at all the wonderful ways he failed. Yeah, he's only here because he he was lucky here. And uh, but don't worry, we got him. Well, he, but here's a, here's a here's a question for you guys because 
I, I think that that is the way the narrator and perhaps even the film uh, frames the movie. But is that really what Barry wants? Does he really want to raise his station based on what we're seeing from his character and from what's happening in the movie? He tries to obviously get a title in the second half of the film, but it's not his idea. It's his mother's idea. And the way that she frames it is as providing for his son. There's not really much sign in the film that he cares that much about his um, position to any great degree beyond what is told to us by the narrator. And I, I, go ahead. I, I'm going to say that really throughout the film, there's only two things. No, I'm going to say three things he really, really seems to care about. The first is his cousin, which he loses. Right. He can't have her. The second is himself. He's selfish to a degree. He doesn't, he deserts the army. He's looking out for number one. The third is his own son. I think his motivation is to protect the things that matter most to him, however he sees it can happen. Um, he can protect himself. He can be free from um, responsibility to a degree if he has money, if he has these things. Cause I, it, similarly, and I think the narrator has a little bit of truth here. He doesn't really care for Lady Linden like he cared for his cousin. He, that's, she is far more a means to, the, to an end of freedom more of a means towards being able to kind of relax and not have to worry about what others expect of him. But yet it leads him more down that road of having even greater expectations towards him. He's a man, like he, he rarely makes decisions that are based on like the only time he makes decisions that are based on something that he emotionally comes to are usually violent decisions. Yes. Every everything else is based off of in our outside influence. Um, so whether it be a captain in the army or his cousin or his uh, wife or his mother or the 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 guy I can't remember his name the, the chevalier the, yeah the chevalier there we go um, those are all things that are made for him and he kind of falls into line with where um, the only times where he makes decisions are those moments of uh, emotion. And that's where like a lot of the criticism that this movie is so cold and Barry is emotionless. um, I find to be very wrong headed because he, he's a man who doesn't know how to control his emotions and constantly has to try to keep them bottled in and then they blurt out which you know if you're going to be stereotyped as an irishman then i guess that would be a very uh you know a very standard thing the bottling of emotions and then having them come out in violent ways uh i think it's very i think it's yeah it's it's very interesting i I like the, the the arc and the structure of this film uh, lends to that. Uh, we're talking about, you know, the adaptation of the of of the book and how it was so long, and we spend so much time watching him change and all the little things and events that happens. And even with the length of this movie, where you know it's 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 so well structured in terms of 
watching his growth pattern and you can see like he goes from that emotional child making stupid mistakes for the sense of what he thinks is love with his cousin to uh, making making you know stupid decisions getting all his money stolen having to join the army uh once again you know uh, going off of his emotion running and fleeing uh, you know, getting caught up in something else, and he's just always caught up into something. And when he does decide to make a decision, um, because of the uh, <clears throat> because of the chevaliers, you know, kind of like showing him what high society is like, he makes it. You know, he makes another poor decision based on uh, by having money, I'll be able to free myself from all of my other past mistakes, which just leads him into another spiral of stupid decisions which i think it's just fantastic like the structure of this film is so so well done in terms of watching his growth as a person but it's interesting because i mean a lot of his he's still conflicted even in the very first scene you know i mean i think the the choice to have him refuse to find the ribbon you know, shows from the very beginning that he has a very difficult time navigating the um, accepted improprieties of society. You know, uh, from his perspective, he's doing the honorable thing, I would assume, by not looking for the ribbon. Um, he and and yet in that moment, he does reveal kind of the his his lack of uh, selfishness and sort of naivete. He, he's not an impulsive um, character in the way that I think some people look at him. And even in that moment when he uh, runs away from the, when he deserts the army, he does it uh, not because he's afraid of getting killed, but because his father figure is killed. Uh, you know, he's, he's fine just marching mindlessly towards uh um, the the firing guns and that really striking scene, which again is just so Kubricky and the the just you know is staying in line and continuing to march forward, um, and you know only when when his uh, his friend and father figure is shot does he break out of formation um, and take him over to the side and 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 we see one of his few sort of emotional breakdowns, um, and then again when. When he meets Lady Linden, it's an interesting question of what his motivation is in that moment. And I do wonder, does he love her or not? I mean, I, I think the assumption is that he does not. But really, the only thing we have to go on with that is him blowing the pipe smoke in her face. You know, I don't necessarily think that the kind of affairs that he has... Um, the, the, I think, you know, there's other men in those bordello, in that bordello. And I mean, I think that's just sort of what the aristocracy did. Um, and so it's really only that one moment that we get the sense that he somehow, uh, you know, that he has contempt for her or that he's not uh, interested in her. Um, and it, it becomes more of a question of why he picked her particularly you know, why, why not pick any of the number of women that he sees, uh, at these fancy card games? Um, and kind of what 
his goal was you know he certainly seems more interested in his son than he does in money or gaining a title you know he wants to provide everything that he can for him as opposed to uh looking out for number one um you know the, i think it was uh the roger ebert great movies uh essay which again just was totally different from my perspective on this movie which i think is part of what makes this movie so interesting is that you can have such wildly different perspectives but he says that the reason that he loves his son is just because he reminds him of him. And that seems crazy to me. I don't see that at all. Um, and if anything, he wants him to be uh, different than, than him and wants him to be better uh, than him. And so uh, to me, I don't see him as especially selfish. Um, I, I see this process of somebody who is extremely passionate and um, kind of uh, emotionally uh, robust <laughs> trying to um, present themselves to the world as they really are um, and getting shot down continually and realizing ultimately that they need to um, subsume themselves and their, their true self to the expectations of a society that uh, consistently sees the fraud in the show that they're putting on and, uh, and ultimately um, can, can never accept uh, him no matter what he does. And, and, and no matter how much he sucks up to the kind of perceived uh, dignities of how a, a man of uh, the aristocracy is supposed to behave. Yeah, I guess uh going going back, uh the 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 ribbon scene for me, um it felt it felt less of him trying to keep um up to the societal standards of kind of like honor and keeping, you know, uh keeping her honor intact and more of part of the theme of his his uh easily him being easily manipulated um because as much as you know as we've said throughout you know there's lots of moments where he's not making decision based on his feelings but based on something else that has been implanted in his head by someone else and i think like his cousin is one of the is one of the only two women in this movie that have any agency and she she is the one who is is wholeheartedly and lustfully pursuing this dalliance with her cousin. And he is completely just out of his element. And I, I really look at it like that is like, oh my God, I I don't know what to do here. I'm not I'm not sure how to go about this at all. And I really think this was their first moment. And because of the way that time ellipses in this film, I think there's a little more time that ellipses between that moment and when she starts dancing with the captain of the uh, the regimen. Um, so between that first blush of, I want you to find this ribbon and I want to pursue you and I want to have this you know romantic or sexual relationship with you, and to that point where she is dancing with the captain and she has moved on from Barry um, or Redmond at that point, um, she has a. Uh, 
he really truly was uh, completely naive and unable to understand how to go about pursuing this uh, romantically. Because I think that's one of the big, um, one of his other arcs that he goes throughout this film is how he changes as a person who relates um, to his sexual desires and his needs and his wants. And because, you know, we start out with him being completely unable to um, perform or to uh, know what to do with a woman to the point where too many women has ruined his relationship and caused his downfall. So I think that's an important arc. And I think starting from innocence, which I think is what I perceive that scene to be about his innocence to his downfall, it, uh, it's important to start from that, that place. And I don't think that's societal. I think as I think the societal aspects pop in is when he starts to realize that he needs to do something to keep this love, you know, that whole first love kind of thing where now I have to defend my honor because this other dude's horking in on my territory kind of thing, which, you know, starts his whole challenging dueling and fighting, which he does three times throughout the film. I, I would say that the duel feels pretty natural from him, whether or not his his interest in his cousin started through manipulation or not. I think you're right. It was manipulation. I think by the time that it gets to the point where he needs to challenge John Quinn, he thinks he feels that way about his cousin, too. Yes. He, it's it's not so much, oh, I have to do this. I, I'd say John Quinn seems more like, I have to duel this guy now. Oh, God, <laughs> I'm going to die, <laughs> which yeah, I think is yeah. one of the best parts of the movie, just his face of horror oh in yeah this duel. <laughs> well, that's, I, I, I love that, that about like all the duels like everyone is like oh mm-hmm. jesus what are we doing like and this it, is so stupid yeah. <laughs> but the only person that doesn't seem like that is barry yeah. barry yeah and i don't know if it's because i i, I think it's because he's kind of dumb i think it's because he kind of he buys a, into the society that's he, why he, but, but he believes he, in it i mean that and that's dumb I mean, that's the it thing. Like, it's naive. And, and think, it, he has yeah, a naive naivete he's about complete, it. Completely naive throughout yeah. the whole thing. He thinks it's right, and and I don't think he's aware of like really the consequences that could happen, which he clearly sees at the end. Well, but, yeah, and because his he, I mean, he wins them and yeah. he keeps winning them, so he's got that dumb jock mentality of like, you mm-hmm. know, I'm never gonna die. I'm kill. I'm ki- I'm killing it. Like this mm-hmm. is this is what I'm meant to do. Like I'm meant to get into duels with these people and then move on and and it, you know it's he has that ability to because as we see with the with the uh the chevalier like that's their game mm-hmm. get to a point where he has to duel someone because he'll always win mm-hmm. and then they move on to the next group and so he has that kind of no matter what happens i can always win the duel which will save me from whatever it is and and he thinks that that by winning these duels that he moves up in society that he proves his worth in this world yeah when in fact everybody hates duels and doesn't (laughs) want to be in them and winning them does nothing you know if you lose you and you're alive that's great like you get to pay off whatever debt you owe and then you move on with your life one thing i i i I saw that in this last viewing is that Every time that he gets, and yes, the, everyone else is like, these duels are stupid, but I think they also see, like, my station will not help me in this duel. This guy is mm-hmm. bigger and stronger. He's going to kill me if he can. And even though that violence 
will completely undermine anyone's station within that duel or within that moment of violence. Barry, like you said, Barry's own violent nature cannot improve his status. When he beats up his stepson, even though his stepson's lord title can't help him there, the fact that he did it only makes Barry worse. Yeah, well, I mean, because he doesn't do it uh, formally in the polite society way of challenging him to a duel, <laughs> right. which then would make him honorable because he's doing it the gentlemanly way, but lashing out at him like a beast in front of everyone in a formal setting in the most delicate of settings, you know, because, you know, because otherwise if Barry would have just held it together, mm-hmm. that kid would have been shunned from society for his improprieties. Mm-hmm. But because of that, just flat out beastly attack on him, he he is now the one rejected from society and it's you know if he would have just held it together and just kept to the rules he would have you know he probably would have come out on top he probably would have gotten that lordship but what would you say is the proper duel format there everyone wearing too big of shoes and like having a kick fight (laughs) we have to have a modern duel i think it's a i think it's snarkiness on the internet most people like i i acquiesce you win the the, the troll fight you made me feel small but it's funny i mean like with lord bullingdon like he is so you know it, he's he's so representative of the fact that this rise in class is impossible in this world you know he's born hating barry like he knows immediately even as a eight-year-old or nine-year-old or ever however old he is when when he meets barry he already knows that this guy is you know a low class like doesn't deserve to be in this world and no matter what he does no matter kind of how um you know ridiculous he acts in that scene uh you know interrupting his mother it's not like barry's playing the piano um Mm -hmm. for all these people um and then just you know trashing both his mother and him in front of everybody um he's still he he feels confident enough in that situation to do that because mm-hmm. it's his house, it's his money, it's his title. And this guy, you know, means nothing to him and, and ultimately not to the other people. I mean, may, maybe Barry would have continued to be high in society, but I doubt he ever would have gotten that title. I mean, look at that interaction with the king where the king basically is just like, hey, oh, you, you raised uh, some, some money for a ship to America? Why don't you go there too? <laughs> <laughs> Get out of my sight. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I don't think it was ever, uh, I don't think it was ever coming to him. Um, but I think that that brutality just, just brought all of the, it allowed the aristocracy to close ranks and, and kick him out, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the, you know, Lord Bullingham had, had every right, because it's strange, because, um, you know, when we talked about, we haven't really talked about it yet, but, you know, Barry's relationship with Lady Linden. Um, you know, we have that sense that he married her for money and upward mobility. Um, but she, throughout the movie, she seems to genuinely be in love with uh, Redmond, with uh, mm-hmm. Barry Linden, um, because she is hurt. Like, when, like, it's not. At first, you know, first viewing, like, you could kind of see it as more, like, embarrassment that he's being so flagrant with his dalliances. But 
like when they're walking and we do that slow zoom in through the willow to him making out with the nanny across the way, you know, she is genuinely hurt and the son registers that and then holds on to it mm-hmm. and is going to, that's going to fuel him for the rest of his, you know, the rest of the time. And that's, you know, that look of hurt on his face and recognizing that is the same look that he basically gives when uh, their final duel together where, you know, Barry finally kind of gives some sort of compassion to this child that he's been nothing but strict and hard on since uh, since the boy called him out. He finally says, okay, you know what, I'm giving this kid an out. He's my, my you know, my wife's last son. Uh, you know, I this he's a young boy, I don't want to kill him. And then the kid just seizes upon that weakness and exploits it and is just like, there, you're going to feel all the pain and hurt. You know, it's... It's great. It's it's so well done, and that his character arc is is fantastic. Lord, uh, uh, little Lord uh, Bullington. 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 Yeah. Why do you guys think uh, Barry fires uh, the gun into the ground? What do you think is the um, motivating incident that makes him do that? Do you, I guess uh, the way what I'm asking is, do you think if if it if it had been tails instead of heads or heads instead of tails. If he had shot first, he still would have fired into the ground. Also, do you think if, if uh, Lord Bullington hadn't misfired, would he still have fired into the ground? And also if Lord Bullington hadn't thrown up, would he still have fired into the ground? I think he would have fired into the ground only in the situation. Oh, wait, no, let me rephrase that. I think he would have tried to shoot Lord Burlington had he gotten the first shot. Yeah. Because I think he would have just, that's what you do. I think it's when he sees that, oh, this kid, his gun went off first. I don't think it's the vomit. I think it's the fact that clearly this kid is terrified and he's able to recognize that. He's just like, let me, you know, let let, let me throw you a bone. Because he expects it in return. And also with, with, with duels of that time, typically if the other person misfired, didn't hit you on purpose, anything like that, the polite thing to do would be to do the same. Mm. So that's part of the society. Kind of Lord Bullington is kind of being a dick in that situation, obviously to us, the viewer, but also within that society. Not that anyone's really going to care because no one really liked Barry Lyndon anyways. Right. But but he was improper. He, he was being a bit savage there because Barry Lyndon had always been savage towards him. Yeah, exactly. The caning, all the canings and the yeah. just treat, mistreatment. And I think, uh, to go back to your question, Matt, I think in that moment, after seeing him at his most pathetic and his weakest, I think, and with after losing his own son, and, you know, I have a feeling that it's, besides doing what is polite and proper, I think he does have a moment of compassion. Like, he has that... I realize that all this, all this, why we're here at this moment is because of me. And I'm going to give him the opportunity to be done with this and kind of like, let's like almost like a new beginning, start over kind of thing. I mean, I truly think that he has a compassionate moment. Like if you think about his, the death of his father figure and that's in the uh, captain and then the death of his son and the loss of like his emotional ties to his wife. I think this moment is a moment of, of realization for him because you can see it on his face. Like he, he, he has the opportunity and he could be cruel and savage about it and just end this and continue his path upward. 
but he I think he really does have that moment of clarity of this isn't right you know I shouldn't be doing this and he shoots to the floor like I I think if he got first he would have fired but he probably he's good enough at what he does that he would have missed I I, I honestly think he never he wouldn't have shot the kid Hmm. I think he would have missed um, intentionally well, I agree. Because at this I, point, because at this point, he also knows that he never killed that first guy. So yeah, his, that's his, true. his, you know, his killing of people in duels now is back to zero at this point because all the sword fights he did when he was working for the uh, right. the Chevalier were to you know play to the death. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't think he ever would have intentionally killed Lord, Lord Bullington. Maybe maim him. <laughs> Yeah, shoot him in the leg. Yeah, just shoot him in the leg like he got shot. I also think that he genuinely feels that if he shoots him to the ground, it's over. He's genuinely surprised when Lord Bullington wants another shot. That I totally agree. I actually think that's that scene is one of Ryan O'Neill's most expressive scenes outside of the, the moments when he breaks down. You know, the mm-hmm. look on his face when he fires into the ground is one of, of sympathy and, and sort of... Um, uh, yeah, I do, I do think he cares about him, or at least, you know, is doing it so that he doesn't hurt this person because he realizes the wrong that he's done um, as well. Um, but then when Lord Bullington is like, no, I'm going to fire at this guy, Ryan, the look on Ryan O'Neill's face is just like, oh, shit, I should have shot you. What What <laughs> yeah, was I thinking? Yeah. Are, you fucking, are you fucking kidding yeah. me? Like, can, can don't I, you can see I get what I just did? Too? Yeah, I exactly. First? Like, actually, um, yeah, I misfired. That was not a... Uh, <laughs> um, well, we it's so funny, too, because all the seconds, like, every duel, all the seconds are constantly like, are you sure right. you want to do this? If you say you're sorry, I think we could all be like, hey, we're cool. And everyone is just like, because of you know, perceived masculinity and not wanting to be considered, you know, not honorable or not manly. Like there's that whole like pressure to continue with this violent way, because if not, then you're, you know, you are less than, which is also a fun theme that has happened throughout all of his movies. Yeah, definitely. Well, let, let's talk about Ryan O'Neill a little bit because um, he gets a lot of crap for this performance and, How can uh, you get crap for this performance after seeing him in that uh, horrible uh, line reading of uh, of Norman Mailer's work? <laughs> you ever seen that line? Oh reading? yeah, no. yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what what is this? <laughs> he's doing a line reading of a like. There's a letter he's reading out loud from this Norman Mailer movie. I can't remember which one, Exterminating Angel, or I think maybe. And he's mm. doing a line reading of. Uh, he gets this letter, and the letter is read in a voiceover. And then as Ryan O'Neill doing the the reading of, he's just going, no, oh God, no, oh no, <laughs> dude, it is you gotta look it up. It is one of the funniest things ever. It is so poorly done. But sorry, Matt, I interrupted. No, no, I mean, I think, uh, I think, well, I think if Ryan O'Neill after this movie had gone on to have any semblance of a decent career. Uh, he probably wouldn't have the same kind of negative uh, perception of him in this film. Um, you know, there, there's a big difference between how Ryan O'Neill seemed uh, when this movie was released uh, on the heels of Paper Moon uh, and Love Story, which Love Story is not aged too well, but, but Paper Moon is still a really great movie. Um, 
he seemed on the way up. And, you know, I mean, people talk about how the potentially the choice Kubrick had for this film was uh, Robert Redford or Ryan O'Neill, obviously, uh, you know, from a star perspective, he, he bet on the wrong horse. Um, but Robert Redford in this role would have completely transformed it in ways that I don't think would have been uh, effective uh, for what Kubrick was intending. And, uh, and for me personally, I think Ryan O'Neill is one of the strongest aspects of this movie. I mean, he is so, he, he, he nails that naive dumbness that you're talking about, Dave, so well, and kind of just has this, you know, innocent schoolboy look about him, um, that is just, uh, so, um, uh, so perfect for, just being tossed aside by all of these people who feel like, you know, he's playing checkers and they're playing chess. I agree with you. But the one question I have to ask, did Ryan O'Neill know that he was doing? (laughs) I think that's always a question with Kubrick's performers. Don't you think? I mean, once you do 150 takes of something, you have no idea what's happening in the Mm -hmm. world, you know, like, you you don't know what he's going to use from each take, you know, and that happened with, with George C., uh, C. Scott in Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't know, you know, what he likes because he's just, all he's saying to you is do it again. And, yeah. and, and on this movie, um, Brian O'Neill expressed frustration about the lack of direction from Kubrick um, and sort of the lack of attention. Um, you know, he, he, Kubrick, would uh he would tell these stories about how Kubrick would just walk right by him to like go talk to like the sec the second assistant set designer or something mm. <laughs> you know on a scene where he was front and center um and to me like that's just Kubrick being like hey this is how you are in this movie like you are nothing to these people mm-hmm. and so you're nothing to me like you just do your thing and like he just seems lost in a way that is uh really perfect for the role that he's performing and yeah i mean i guess the question is is he well cast or is it a great performance um but on the screen i don't think it makes a difference i the other thing i was going to say is i I think what might make people think that he is ill cast or not doing a good job is that everyone around him is like completely chewing the scenery in the best way possible yeah so you have these over-the-top performances, especially Lord Bullington during that scene where he's vomiting during the duel. He's, like, shaking. <laughs> he's doing all this. Meanwhile, Ryan O'Neill's just standing there. But it's perfect. It's perfect for the character. Yeah. And, I, yeah, I think... I can't remember which, which actor was interviewed, and they said, you know, Kubrick only talks to you if there's something wrong with your performance. Yeah. Otherwise, he's happy with what you're doing because you guys went over it together for so long during the kind of rehearsal process that he doesn't, you know, if there's an issue, he'll talk to you. Otherwise, you're fine. Or he'll recast you and shoot the entire movie over again. (laughs) Exactly. If he's got a problem, you know, he'll he'll let you know. He doesn't seem to be the person who's afraid to let someone know that there's a problem with what's going on. Um, But yeah, no, I think uh, what Dave was saying, I think think that's, and I think it's it's part of what this movie is, is that everyone else is far more projects to be far more interesting than Barry Lyndon is or Ryan O'Neill is in the movie and that's part of what his kind of like his progression is is trying to be you know at some point he does I 
I like to think that like he starts off as kind of romantic in terms of like you know the dueling and the love of his cousin and all that stuff and war kind of strips him strips him down of that romantic ideal um because then when he you know it's all like being a hero and fighting and marching and being a soldier and everything's awesome and then he loses loses his father figure in that uh in that captain and after that he has a breakdown you know he cries and it's genuine emotion and he is very upset about the whole situation and then he sees like okay well his romantic ideas of what being a man is is kind of shattered and he and he hits the road so when he's forced to join the second army that he's in like he is just <laughs> He is despondent, like he is just broken at that point, and he's just doing whatever he can. And then when he meets the, you know, the Chevalier, he sees that, that you know, he makes that connection back to his home country and the feelings of being that romantic version of himself, and he takes a chance to kind of like get himself out of that situation. Because I think if he didn't meet that guy, he would have just continued. And just been a yes man the rest of his life in that army. Like there would have been nothing. He wouldn't have changed anything. But I think having that meeting with another Irishman. And having a small connection back to his idealistic kind of romantic ideas of what he wanted life to be. Pushed him forward. But then that guy just leads him into graft and... uh and just like cheating and like this is how life is kid you've got to play dirty and then that is what propels him forward into the next section which is playing dirty to kind of become something better than himself which is but uh i think ryan o'neill does a does a fantastic job with that because he is he is kind of like the sounding board for us to kind of see what the world is like and I think that's where a lot of the cold formalism comes in that a lot of people find in this film. And that's because the society that he is residing in is very, very formal. And so all those shots are very formal, very painterly, very composed, because everyone has to be very composed and, and keep in. And so I think Ryan O'Neill does a great job of just being kind of quiet and I'm going to let these things happen to me because whenever he does react to something or gets involved in it, it goes wrong. And I think he's, he's dumb. I think uh, it's less of playing checker, uh, playing checkers versus chess. He's playing tic-tac-toe versus chess. (laughs) (laughs) But there, there is so much, I mean, I think there's a lot of depth to his simplicity and a lot of the responses that he has uh, in this film. It, It feels very much like you can read into his responses so many different things and and you know i don't know maybe i'm maybe i am reading in where there's uh nothing going on but it it really feels like you know um another uh on the flicks wise uh barry linden episodes uh somebody compared him to buster keaton um in terms of just sort of the stone face appearance and Buster Keaton had um, a kind of uh, vibe that, like, he knew that he was in a movie all the time and that there was something, like, he was always thinking five steps ahead of everybody else in the movie. Um, and you always felt like he could reach off screen and grab whatever he needed. Um, 
but and Barry, uh, you know, Ryan O'Neill's performance here doesn't have that, but I think it has that kind of like, um, uh, every man, like sort of, uh, empty perspective that really runs a lot deeper than it, uh, than it otherwise might. And I really like that aspect of it. Um, isn't it is cement in the, uh, one of the interviews, he says it's like the Kalashnikov uh, experiment where his, his, his expression <laughs> is only judged uh, as emotion when compared to the things around him kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you, you mentioned the visuals. Let's, let's go there now. Cause we haven't, uh, talked about probably the most famous thing about this movie, which is that it's absolutely gorgeous to look at. Um, what what strikes you guys the most about kind of how Kubrick shot this movie and how he composed it? I will say something that really sticks out to me as impressive is knowing how much of a perfectionist Kubrick is and how many takes he wants, that he was able to get outdoor shots with the perfect outdoor lighting and nail it because there's only so many hours of the day where everything outside looks like that and looks beautiful like that. Because he, he really did strive to have that, like, 18th century painting vibe. Yeah. And there are so many landscapes where you have the actors in the foreground doing something, what, where you see miles and miles and miles behind them that look like this perfect painting. And it's not a mat. You're seeing the actual world. And it looks gorgeous. And being able to get however many takes he likes to do within the time frame that the sun was still out and still exactly there and the clouds were in the right place. And usually a complicated move of some nature yeah. where it was a long zoom out or a zoom in or a dolly shot that just went on forever. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's one of the thing, like the strongest element which supports all the themes and motives of this film is the formalism of the shots that he's creating. Um, everything, like I, this is the, fr- this viewing was the first time that I realized the first shot of this film is the whole entire film, which is gentlemanly people uh, doing honorable things to bring about their own self-destruction because the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Mm. Like that whole shot and in, 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 in then in the, in the, uh, the entirety of the world because it is such a it, there's depth in that shot that you see everything as far back as you can see you know so in history as well because it's such a is such a gorgeous piece because you don't know what's going on until you see that they're fighting you see that someone dies and it is just it's exactly everything that is about to happen in this film which is a bunch of men doing stupid things in the name of honor to achieve something greater than themselves and it's i think i find that fascinating that i mean that's the first shot of the film and it just keeps going from there like every shot is just it is a painting and you know you hear that every you know every frame of painting kind of thing but it's literally like he's drawing inspirations from lots of uh famous artists of that time period and composing his frames uh very much in the same exact way that they were composing their frames um and then like dave was talking about with the lighting um you know <laughs> i think one of the cinema i think one of the the gaffer uh which 
The fact that this Criterion disc has an interview with the first AC and the gaffer, as opposed to just the cinematographer, I find to be amazing. I love that. Like, that is because as much as I love interviews with cinematographers or DPs, um, they're always talking from an artistic perspective because their idea is to visualize what these written words are, what the director wants, what the emotions is. But the AC and the gaffer have to take those visual, that artistic intent and turn it into a technical thing. And so the technical thing is what fascinates me. And when the gaffer says, no, there's a, mis- there's a misconception that we used only natural light in this film. No, we just had to make it look as natural as possible right. in this film. Mm-hmm. Because they did have lights. They did light from the windows. They did do things to augment the candles a bit, like putting reflectors in the ceiling and to add a little bit of bounce warmth here or there to kind of fill out the room. Um, they weren't just lit with candles, but they were the primary source for a lot of the stuff. So that is just fascinating. And then, the you know, once again, Kubrick coming off of 2001, where he had to invent all these processes to achieve his vision. Once again, this, you know, in this film, he, he had to invent a, you know, take a lens, lens that was made for uh, space photography, uh, made for NASA, this Zeiss lens. And he had to take it and, uh, rig it in such a way that it would work with a film camera so they could shoot at such light levels that they could shoot candlelight and have it be the only source in the room kind of thing. And that's just fascinating to me is that once again, Kubrick, you know, if he wants something done, he, he'll, he'll just invent it. You'll mm-hmm. have someone invent it. And that, like, you don't see that anymore. Like, you don't see someone just saying, hey, let's just invent this way yeah. of doing things. We just, oh, we can't solve it. Let's just fix it in post well and fre- is, frequently the those those inventions come purely for the sake of the invention they're they're very rarely driven by some sort of um artistic or narrative purpose um mm-hmm. that in, in the way that this was here um and I, I really love the focus pulling discussion on the disc as well um oh yeah you know, the, the fact that they had to um Basically, when you looked through this camera with this lens, it looked perfectly in focus all the time. But then when they shot tests, they realized that the range of focus was incredibly small, like inches. If somebody leaned forward slightly, they would go out of focus. And so they had to have a, a second camera that went to a monitor so that they could um, grid out where everybody was in focus based on where the the uh the adjustment of the lens needed to be so every time anybody moved slightly they would know exactly where to to shift the lens to keep it in focus um and that really opened up for me an understanding of kind of these you know the the technical necessity of the um lack of motion in a lot of these shots and it fits thematically of course like the idea that these people are trapped um in this world and that they um and that they are are you know unable to kind of uh be free um but it also you know really fits with the 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 portraiture and sort of the the kind of like ghostly past that kubrick is depicting here um, and it's interesting, like in the in the supplement about the paintings for this movie, 
um, you see the paintings that he that were in, uh, an inspiration for Kubrick, and there's a lot of motion in them. They're very like um, uh, the painters are all lively. Yeah, they're super lively. The painters are always trying to uh, convey a sense. They're almost trying to make a movie, and in fact, a lot of these were series of paintings where they were telling a story with each painting, um, you know, covering a narrative arc, um, and. Kubrick's portraits in this film are a lot more staid and immobile. Um, and I think that that, uh, that approach probably came a lot from that need to kind of keep everything in focus. Um, but I think it also fits with the movie and just kind of, you know, the, the fact that these characters are all stuck. You would think that, a normal director, not Kubrick, would just say, okay, lighting with candlelight, it's just too hard. Let's not even bother with right. it. it it's, it's creating too many issues. We have to have a second camera with a grid on this monitor so we can figure out where the focus actually is. Not worth it. Just light it normally and add some candles. Nah, <laughs> he wanted it that way, so he did it. Right. Yeah, and, that's, and, and the fact that the technicians in the film realized like how important it was and how much fun it was for them to break out of their normalcy oh, yeah. to do something very unique and weird and different. And, the, and like them being presented with challenges that they had to solve made it more fun for them to make the film. Yeah. Um, you know, that, you know, being on set, there's a lot of times where it's just repetitive and it gets really tiresome. But that day where you have something really unique to have to figure out, a problem to solve, that's a day you see the crew come to life and just like everyone's like, yeah, and they get jazzed about the project again. But it's that, you know, and having that is just fantastic to see them excited about that process. And I'm sure there were all kinds of just fantastic challenges in this film because just through composition, like the fact that they, none of this was a stage, they were shooting in practical locations. And these are all historic buildings that now he has to have over 200 candles in them. And you can see the production designer just losing his mind Mm -hmm. because there's just like wax dripping all over these like 16th century rugs. (laughs) He's just like, oh no, what am I going to do? A lot of these buildings were open to the public. And so the the public was literally walking by these sets uh, oh as God. as they were shooting yeah. these these scenes in a lot of these buildings because they would just they wouldn't close off the entire building so they would just close off a room and so people could just walk by and see oh there's the apparently somebody's shooting a movie in there um, and they, they would just candles. film in this one room <laughs> um, but I but I think the you know the the point about you know an average director just wanting to to just saying okay well we'll use some candles and some artificial light is a really important one when you're talking about Kubrick's perfectionism because you know he's notorious for being uh, a perfectionist I think this movie is the perfect example of the type (laughs) of perfectionist he was because Mm -hmm. like we were talking about earlier when the actors arrived on the sets the script was like in this scene, there's a dual dialogue to be written, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and, and there were whole scenes that were made up. Apparently, uh, Leon Vitale is the older version of Lord Bullingdon had a much smaller role, uh, in when he was initially cast and there were a, a number of scenes that he was in and the priest, um, the, uh, uh, Lady Linden's, uh, companion, um, 
he would just sit around on set at, because he was originally only going to be in, in the movie for a couple weeks uh, of work. Um, but he, uh, Stanley Kubrick always wanted him on set because he, he kept being like, um, I think we're going to do this scene and I think you should be in this one. So, you know, come on and in, come a, on in. That's a good decision because that guy just looks so perfect. He for this does. Movie. Like well, every time he's on screen, it's like, oh, yeah. I gotta look at that. And guy. the way that he was cast in the role was he showed up and uh, he had never met Stanley Kubrick before. He just showed up on set and he got into costume and he didn't know if he, he had the part at this point. He would, wasn't sure that he thought they were just trying on the costumes to see what he looked like. And all of a sudden, after a few hours, like Stanley Kubrick shows up and uh, he comes in and he looks at him and he's like, OK, uh, yeah, you, you got the role. Like he just he didn't do anything except just see him in the costume, and of course he like, looks like he he walked out of a Van Eyck painting. Very much, he, yeah. It's oh perfect. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah but I but I yeah. get you know on the on the perfectionist point, like that that is the kind of perfectionist he was. He had a vision of kind of how the movie was supposed to look. He knew the the themes of the movie that he wanted to convey, and he did the research so that he was prepared to pretty much entirely improvise once he got on set and make sure, you know, he knew all of the thing. He knew where he wanted to get. He just didn't know yet how he was going to get there. And I think a lot of people think of perfectionists as people who storyboard everything um, like Hitchcock or the Coens or something um, and have every single detail. You know, there's a famous story about um, Jeff Daniel or Jeff Bridges showing up on um, the set of Big Lebowski the first day and uh, John Goodman was like, so, like, you know, do you have all your lines ready? Like, are you ready to go? And Jeff Bridges was like, well, yeah, I mean, I looked at it, but I'm sure things will be changed. And, and, and you know, John Goodman had worked on a number of Cohen movies before, and he was like, oh, no, that's going to be the movie. <laughs> you need to know all of that because they're not changing a single word. And that was definitely not what Kubrick was in any way. Um, he was a very messy he was very messy in production but he was incredibly disciplined and focused in uh in pre-production and in preparation for for the movie well it's like it's he 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 his process is like like preparing for to be a debater like you get all the information and you get all the uh research and you do all your homework so therefore when he gets onto set he can he can win every argument Right, you know, because he has that information, and that's you know, and I think that's a fascinating way, because you know that idea of perfection is like you're saying, like it's our the movie's already made in his head, kind of thing is is that idea of perfection. But he was always looking to make the film better, in which he could add those things, throw Reverend Runt in every scene because he just has that beautiful Gainsborough look. Or take it into post and rework the film over and over and over again until it gets it right. You know, when you talk about like, you know, the Coens or Hitchcock or uh, the other person who's really, really about everything being like the film being made before we even get into post. Uh, you know, whether you like him or not, Clint Eastwood. He's also one of those people that everything's like just done by the time you actually film. So you just will literally A to B to C to D in post, and you're done. The movie's out. Um, you know, there's no tinkering with it, and that is great and all. But you know, having that ability to 
challenge yourself and work new ways and think of new things um, that helps enhance or change or or drive home the point of your story or your themes is I think is more masterful than just being you know a perfectionist you know it's it's there's more to it than that the other thing I wanted to mention about the sort of painting feeling of all of this is that it um it has this real like otherworldly vibe to it like it it's not a it's funny because people talk about this movie as if it's like the most accurate representation of what um like it's almost as if he it's almost as if Kubrick went back in time and filmed the movie in the 1700s um and to me like it's very much through the prism of um looking at the past but also has this dreamlike vibe to it like i almost get like a a last year at marion bad or even like cabinet of dr caligari like there's this weird skewed perspective of what reality is like because of the fact that you're almost looking at these like weird paintings and that the the characters are just being moved around like pieces on a chessboard but isn't that more realistic than e- actual reality because that's how we perceive art yeah i was was, yeah i was gonna make yeah say that same thing like (laughs) we're art we're looking at the best possible version of what that thing is artists were never painting reality they were always trying to because if you think about art in that period most of the times it was commissioned art by families wanting to show how awesome they were and typically you had to have a lot of money just to commission it anyway so you were already probably pretty awesome in terms of your status or whatever. Yeah, they mentioned yeah, people exactly. even like rented out costumes for the paintings that they were going to that they had commissioned. Like they wanted clothes that were better than even than the clothes that they could afford. Like it's like inst- it's like Instagram. It's, it was the Instagram of the 1700s yeah. basically. <laughs> well, I'm going to put I mean, I'm going to put on the high class filter on my Instagram that's going to instantly give me a a high collar. Yeah, exactly. This my, my Instagram filter puts three oranges in in any frame I'm in to show how rich I am. <laughs> but well it's yeah cuz it's so funny like like when people complain about social media in that aspect. I'm like they've been we've been doing this forever. Oh, yeah. Everyone just wants to present the best version of themselves possible and that's the only version they want to be have seen. Right, and even the clothing. I mean, it's not like this was comfortable relaxing clothing to hang out in. Yeah, it's no one no one like and that's our and that's how like Dave was just saying that's our view our skewed view of the past is through uh is through this art and this art was very unrealistic it was always yeah. hyper real hyper hyper uh, uh contextualized and made to be more lush and more vibrant and more everything than what it is and so you know plus take that and you look in the history of what was the written things that were happening that time and everything was very romanticized and written for upper class people so there's no lower class writings because they didn't know how to read it all at that point (laughs) so there's nothing that shows that kind of aspect so everything is romanticized and i think that's another thing that kubrick captures really well was this romanticized idea of what that time is and injecting it with a sense of uh, fantasy, because it is the whole thing is a fantasy, which I think ties it thematically to his last three films, which is this is a fantastic portrayal of what could possibly happen. 
and now he's just saying, well, this is a fantastic portrayal of what the past would was, and I think that works out like well. It's his yeah, it's a simulacrum. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it does give thing things you know even without the um, the presence of the lower classes, which you know are 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 conspicuously absent here um, for the most part, unless you see them as soldiers. Um, it, it does allow for this kind of off feeling of that, you know, things are, this is not quite right. This is not quite the accurate depiction of what we're seeing. It, it's interesting as well, because even Be- Redmond Barry's life, it's not like he's like a dirt farmer. Right. Mm. They're They're not like, wealthy wealthy they're not like poor either it's because they're irish and from this other society that's being uh indoctrinated into english society that he's lower so even even what they perceive as low class to the average person now is just like oh look at all those fancy suits he has look at all the guineas he has <laughs> yeah i mean he go he he leaves with a with a bag of gold like it's not like he was like with this shirt on his back he made his right. way out in the world when he's mm-hmm. run out of the village he's leaving with a big sack of gold so and it's funny uh talking about the visual aspects of the film like there's a lot of lushness to the film but the color palette is muted a bit like with the exception of the red coats mm-hmm. um everything has a very uh, restrained color like it's there and the lushness is there and the depth is there but the color it's not popping yeah. you know and there's mm-hmm. no popping colors but the only time there's popping colors is when they're in Ireland at the beginning mm-hmm. and there's that farm like when they do the pan across of the uh, like his little Irish farm that he's leaving everything is green and lush and all the colors are very vibrant there. And then he moves away from that and moves into a candle lit society. You know, it's a, uh, it gets dark and just like, you know, gauzy and everything has a bit of a mist or, a, you know, a fog to it, which, you know, it's, it's very interesting. It's a, it's a nice uh, visual kind of move into this other world yeah. that he goes to. And there's definitely a shift from the exteriors. There's a lot more exteriors uh, in the, in the beginning of the movie than in the end um and the exteriors often have roads and people you know moving in them there's always sort of there's a lot more mobility at the beginning of this movie and sort of just open air uh sense of freedom uh than in the latter half of the movie where most of the mo- the mobility is happening inside of coaches or like being pulled by sheep <laughs> so I mean... well, you could you could argue that the <laughs> You could argue that the themes of the movie, the first half, is literally movement, upward mobility, going from place to place, and the second half is standing in one place and yeah. sinking in quicksand. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Now, something I was curious about, because in viewing the movie again, I definitely noticed somewhat of a departure from Stanley Kubrick's usual visual style. You guys have obviously been picking through every single thing that he's done up to this point. Would you say that this looks from just a cinematographical standpoint different from like a clockwork orange or 2001 or even the things that follow this, like the shining. I think, yeah, I think this is the almost the epitome of his visual style. Like I think he uses everything he's learned from all of his other films and he puts it to the most 
clear like the most clear representation of of his visual style is in this film because he does the um you know he does he doesn't waste shots like when you start at the beginning of his mo- of his movies you can see that he's stuck in the formal uh, aspect of how Hollywood films are shot. And then once in a while, you get a shot that breaks out of that mold. And then you get to Paths of Glory, and his visual style is elevated uh, drastically to almost a European filming style. And then it's brought back down again in his next film. And then he's working his way back up to this point here. And it's a perfect example because he, you know, it's his staged and very formal frames, usually with movement throughout them. You know, he uses that zoom lens. A lot of people at that time are using the zoom lens as a quick, like, punch in or just a laziness of not having, you know, not wanting to keep switching out lenses for speed. And he's using it very much for purpose Mm -hmm. you know we start on the guns which is what this is about and then we pull back to show that you know we having this moment of violence in this pastoral picturesque setting Mm -hmm. or we're looking at or we're starting wide and we move into this tiny moment that we want to and then he does handheld like whenever there's some sort of action or that uh the two fights that are physical not a duel, but the physical fights when he's uh, sparring with the other soldier over the uh, insults um, in the army or when he's fighting uh, Lord Bullingham, those are handheld and he picks it up and the camera is moving in a way that um, is violent and raw and very different from everything else we've seen. When Lady Linden and takes poison as yeah, well, that yeah, that was yeah, and La- yeah, and Lady Linden takes poison. Well, it's the very violent, physical, violent things. Everything like it's just so. It is. It's almost a, like I think. I mean, we haven't watched the last three yet, and so I can't conclude my theory. But I think this, like from here on out, it's almost like his uh, cinemagraph, uh, his cinematography style um, degrades a bit from here on out. Like it becomes more, more rough, more loose. I think like this is just so structured and well composed and well thought out that it uh, like I find it hard to see him topping it. And from my memory, he doesn't. One thing that I think that he does here that is slightly different from what he does in say the, the Shining or a Clockwork Orange, this film feels a lot less centered. Like, he has, like, the one-point perspective a lot with rooms where you're right in the middle where everything kind of goes into infinity at the center of the frame. Yeah. And I I think part of why he doesn't do that as much here is because that's not the style of the paintings at the time. There's a lot more uh, angles from, like, a three-quarter perspective uh, viewing people. Like, there's there's one shot that really stuck out to me as being probably not the way that Kubrick would have shot this otherwise. It's the the one with... uh, uh, Barry and his son yes. sitting on the gigantic couch with the gigantic painting above them. Like that shot screams like let's we're in a big square room, let's really center this and have everything kind of go into one point. But because that just wouldn't be right for the time period, he's like, Alright, let's do it from the left, have them all the way on the one corner of the couch and light them all from one side to kind of give it even more depth. 
I find very interesting. Oh, yeah, and it gives you that theme of these two will never fit in here. Yeah. If they were centered, like, they they are in their environment. By having them off to the side, they're just, like, visually saying, nope, these guys are never going to fit into this world. Yeah, and compare that to the first shot of um, Lord Bullingdon grown up, um, where, you know, it's one of the reverse zooms, and you Mm -hmm. you are tight on his face, you know, and, and you... Uh, pan back to see all these other people but like this is the focus like he is he is the aristocracy all these other people that you know barry has invited for his uh you know son's birthday party uh aren't really important um and uh i i agree travis i think that this movie is um kind of the height of his uh style not just because it's so beautiful uh, and so flawlessly executed from a technical perspective, but because it every choice feels so tied thematically to what's happening on screen um, and what the movie is about in a way that I didn't feel in A Clockwork Orange. Uh, a Clockwork Orange feels a lot more kind of um, experimental and improvisational um, in a way that I think makes for an interesting viewing but I don't think uh, holds up as well on multiple rewatches uh, in the way that, that this movie does. Um, and I see, you know, there, I think there's some things that, I think a lot of the most famous aspects of Kubrick's cinematography, kind of the, um, the Kubrick stare that people talk about is not present here. Um, you know, a lot of the kind of, the brutal depiction of violence is not here really. There's not, even when Barry gets shot, it's not especially violent. Um, and, and even the fight scene, I mean, I think you see the passion of Barry, but you don't really see his kind of, um, um, you know, brutal attack, uh, to any, you know, you don't see any faces getting bashed in or anything like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the more important thing there is everyone else's reaction. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, And so I think a lot of the things that people think about on the surface of Kubrick's films, and then, of course, like, you know, Steadicam still hadn't been invented at this point, but his later movies utilize that to a great degree, especially um, Full Metal Jacket and The Shining. Um, That's that's one thing that I, I was thinking, like, I wonder what he had, what he could have done had he made this film two years later when the city cam was out because he made this right before the thing was invented. Yeah. I mean, in most of the shots that like are steady cam ish in their nature, he's, he's on a, he's on a wheelchair with, you know, the camera on a wheelchair. So you can have right. that mobility of not having a dolly. So yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting. Yeah, there was, there's one shot. It's the one where Lord Bullington is coming to confront Barry yes. to like challenge him to the duel. Yep. I'm like, wait, is this a steady cam? It's like, wait, no, this is like two years before that was invented. So it can't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and that that shot itself, like, oh man, the the technical, <laughs> just the technical perfection of that shot, going from that kind of following close up to a pan that shows the whole room to end on that beautiful, just uh, immaculate frame mm-hmm. is stunning. That's that, yeah. that's the one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, every time I close my eyes and I see that in the opening shot. I, I honestly don't know how that's not a painting. Uh, I mean, when he, every oh. time he walks into frame, Lord Bullingdon walks into frame, 
I am surprised that he is able to walk directly into a painting. Yeah. Because um, it just looks yeah. so much like uh, a painting that it's really, uh, really surprising. And, and you're right, Travis. I mean, every frame of painting was coined for for this movie. Um, you know, I mean, there's some Tarkovsky films that could probably get away with that title as well. Um, but there's not many other movies that you could point to. And I mean, it, it it's really, really interesting to watch the zooms uh, um, focused exclusively on the visuals because there are definitely three or four perfectly composed shots in every zoom, you know, where, where yeah. you could easily stop on each one and have and have a full story being told and every time you move back to the next one you're getting one added element of that story that's helping you understand what's happening in a different way and perceiving it in a different way it's really fascinating uh you brought up tarkovsky which is funny because on this viewing there were two or three shots where i was like i wonder if he saw andrei rubelev before making this movie Hmm. Because there's just there was a couple shots that just felt like you know that slow pan that just reveals everything yeah. in a space that were ha- what was happening in that in Andrei Rublev, and uh, you know then I thought well he probably didn't see that because it was harder to see movies from all over the <laughs> all over the world at that point. He had but, a uh, knack for finding weird things though. Like he saw like Ikari XB One. Uh, the Czechoslovakian movie that I don't think that was really well known yeah. and that was a big influence on 2001. And Funeral so Parade of really Roses big. was a big influence oh, on yeah. um, Clockwork yeah. Orange as well. And and yeah. it was interesting to see um, the emigrant, uh, the new land come up uh, in the, the supplements here. That w- that actually was a, a pretty big hit um, in the U.S. and actually got nominated for Best Picture, I think. Um, but mm-hmm. um, he, he talked about, uh, they talked about how he really loved the portrayal of the um, costumes in that film how they felt lived in and like really from that time and um, actually called up Jan Troll and um, got and that's how he got like he hired the the woman who had done the costumes for that for for this movie yeah Jan Troll hung up on him like three times because he thought he was just being pranked the whole time oh my god yeah, she has. Yeah, this. Yeah, she's this. Yeah, she's the Swedish costume designer. He loved how lived in the costumes looked and didn't look fake. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true in Barry Lyndon. Yeah, yeah, the costumes are fantastic in this film. Like, in the progression, like uh, Lady Lyndon's, like hair and costume mm. are just yeah. like <laughs> stunningly amazing. Mm-hmm. And she like, and we haven't really touched on her, but like her. Like her presence in this film is uh, is fantastic, and she like she becomes the way that Barry utilizes her for his gain is like uh, you know she is this beautiful art object that is possessed in this film, and she it's it's stunning and it's funny because you know she got to where she was in the same way Barry is trying to get to where he wants to go, and. I, she barely says anything in the film, which is another one of my, you know, when we get to our, yeah, Kubrick's treatment of women's scorecard at the end of this uh, episode, <laughs> you know, we could talk a little bit more about that, but, um, just visually, her her progression throughout the film, um, is is a, is stunning as well. Like she just goes to the point where she's in that 
tub when she is completely now realizing that Barry doesn't love her or has never loved her. And she is so waxy and sullen and gray, but she's in this most erotic like position and form. It's so compellingly grotesque. <laughs> like I'm like, you know, one point of me, I'm just like, oh my god, she's stunning, but she's at her most sad. Like she's like until she tries to kill herself and fails and is just in immense pain. But well, and the narrator I, is like, and she only took a little bit of poison. It was not really yeah, that big of a deal. Yeah. I take that much poison every <laughs> <Yeah>. day. <laughs> um, by the way, I, do I, you guys I, know where I can get an upholstered tub? Oh, God, uh, right? I have three in my basement. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm going to give a big kudos to the, to the makeup department for the makeup they gave to Lady Linden because literally she seems as though as the movie progresses as if Barry is draining the life out of her. She yes. still looks like she's able to survive and exist in this society, but her face just becomes more and more lifeless each scene. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because at the start, she's in the white makeup, the white kind of of the time, the fashion of the time. And then she, at their first, you know, romance, she starts to be more naturalistic. And then, yeah, by the end, she's a ghost. Mm-hmm. It's so well done. I want to talk about... Uh... The reception to this movie because um it did win a couple of technical awards um and uh it, it wasn't like it was panned by everybody um it got kind of a mixed response um mostly focused on the the technical aspects and visuals of it um but uh obviously it has had a a um gradual reconsidering over the years uh to the point where it's um very highly regarded now in fact it it's uh it i believe it's the second highest kubrick film on uh, sight and sound after 2001 um it's certainly very high on the director list i think it's in the top 25 actually um hmm. and it's uh it's famously scorsese's uh favorite kubrick film although um i think Spielberg I read described it uh at the time as uh a a walk through the Prado without lunch <laughs> which uh there you go <laughs> Steven Spielberg um but uh it's definitely you know widely respected now although still remains uh his least popular uh film post uh str- like from Strange Love on uh in terms of sort of views sales uh i looked it up on um, imdb and it's substantially lower in terms of the number of ratings uh on there um any other than any other film post spartacus uh, including lolita um so i mean i think part of that is just that it's a three-hour costume drama um and but i i was wondering especially in the context of both of you having seen the movie once and then reconsidering it later um, why you guys think uh, it's it wasn't received well at first and why, you know, kind of how that reputation has evolved uh, over the years. I mean, Stanley Kubrick's just ahead of his time a lot of the times. I feel like this isn't the first one of his films that was reconsidered yeah. later. Like 2001 got panned by the critics. Well, maybe not fully panned, but people didn't really like that. It, it's something that became more beloved later. He just it's his curse he made great films that just weren't fully appreciated enough during their time 
Yeah, I agree. I think he was so far ahead of the game, especially to American audiences. I think with his move to living in Europe, um, I think he was exposing himself to a lot more artistic films, which, you know, if, you know, not saying that there isn't something artistic to a lot of American films, but, you know, we had the Hollywood system and at that time it was you know it's a big it's a big gamble going from the realistic cinema of the 70s that was happening in the US to Barry Lyndon yeah. which is completely different it's not handheld and dark and gritty and with improvisational method acting it is it is a very structured formal piece of art that is it is meant to envelop you into kind of like upon repeated viewings discover more and more thematic things you know throughout and like i said at the beginning of the of this episode like it wasn't until i had a deeper understanding of film history and of more um exploratory and slow-paced and kind of uh, experimental films that i could not saying this is experimental at all but I could have a deeper understanding of what this film is about and get away from the plot and the surface elements and understand the depth in which Kubrick was working in, which is it's that's hard. And that's hard to kind of like, and it's one of those things where if you push this film on people, I think there'll be a general negative reaction to it. It's one of those movies you have to work yourself up to enjoying I don't think, you know, as we all said, all of us and everyone I've talked to didn't like this movie on the first viewing. It was boring. It was kind of, and I think that's that's the thing about this film is it's only appreciated after a certain level of growth as a cinephile that you can reach and really appreciate this film. And to what you were saying earlier, Matt, like, you know, it had the lowest, you know, it's not the most sought after Kubrick film in those numbers I'm kind of glad because then I don't think Criterion would have been able to do such an amazing version of this Mm -hmm. film you know they were just given it and they oh it's stupendous like the the transfer of this is is phenomenal like I've only seen it those two other times on DVD and it was not anything to like I did not really get a sense of just how gorgeous the film is Right, and it's never been shown in the correct ratio before. And and what what other film would you most want more want to see, perfectly framed uh, as it was originally intended uh, than this movie? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's somewhat ironic that this movie we been talking about and i think we all agree that that so much of the themes of this movie and even the style to a certain degree is is quintessentially kubrick um and yet i think this film suffers because it's so often seen in the context of kubrick's other films um this is nobody nobody nobody's first kubrick movie is barry linden you know <laughs> Although it will be my yeah, se- it, will be, it will be my kids. Barry <laughs> no, it won't. but you guys would love <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um and so, you know, I think uh and and part of that is that I think um 
the reason that people like Kubrick movies initially um, is not necessarily the reason why they hold up to scrutiny and repeated viewings and sort of evolving taste. Um, you know, the, your, your first, uh, pleasure of, this is true of Scorsese too, I think, you know, your first, um, your first Scorsese's are going to be Goodfellas and, um, Taxi Driver and, um, you know, those, those movies. And I think it takes more time to appreciate, uh, um, the, uh, Last Temptation of Christ or uh, Age of or Innocence. Or Age of Innocence. Yeah, exactly. To go with the other costume drama. Yeah, that yeah. was handed over to Criterion because it was not um, as popular as, as some of other, Scorsese's other films. Um, so I think that um, that has hurt it. Um, that The association with Kubrick's other movies um, sort of sets people up to expect something that this movie is not, despite the fact that it is so similar to those other movies, especially, I think, um, Clockwork Orange and, and Lolita. Um, so I, I think that's the aspect of it that people didn't understand initially uh, in upon initial release as well, that they had seen these three previous futurism movies and, uh, you know, expected more, I think they expected this movie to be a, uh, a commentary on contemporary society a lot more in a lot more of a bald faced way than it is. And I, I think they're definitely, mm. you know, I think the, the message of this movie is timeless, not specific, uh, mm. to any one era, um, whether it's 1975 or 1775. And I think that aspect of it um, kind of took people by surprise. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, that timeless, I mean, that's the thing that we've noticed now watching all these films, like a lot of his grand overarching themes are timeless themes that we can place within our society. We, you know, we saw that with Paths of Glory. We saw that with 2001. These are all themes that are easily transferable into any generation that we've had so far. Um, the other thing with this film is that we talked about in, in terms of his, his catalog of films that he's made. Um, we've mentioned, you know, we've talked about that whole, like the power death sex triangle that is the center of all of his films and this is the film that it finally strikes almost a perfect balance of those. Um, you know, his, you know, his, you know, through uh, sex getting some power, power only leads to death, um, which then is the loss of sex and the loss, you know, it just, it is that perfect structure. It just keeps on going and going and going. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, it was like Dave said originally. It's, it was it was ahead of what the time was because then what you had like what Tom Jones came out like a year later or something like that. No, Tom Jones was correct? in the sixties. Yeah. Oh, Tom Jones was yeah. in the sixties. Yeah. Okay. Because Everyone I think wanted a delightful romp. I guess and this is I, I, not yeah, a romp. I think so. I agree with you one hundred percent. I think people expected kind of like more fun, frivolity, more like Amadeus, kind of like <laughs> that high energy and lot more exposed uh, breasts uh, right. bouncing around and stuff like that which which is also very funny this is a very sensual film and i think there's only one tiny little bit of nudity 
in that brothel scene and mm-hmm. that's it yeah but it's very central like you like i just remember this from my first viewing. like i went going into my second viewing i was like oh yeah there's like nudity in here and there's all kinds of like sexy things and no there yeah. isn't yeah <laughs> that was my my bad memory of like what i thought this movie was about well it, but it, the movie is also uh like secretly hilarious again like oh my god yes Kubrick. that's that's the one thing i missed out the most the first time is how funny this movie yeah, is yeah yeah and and it's funny um in the the interview he did after the the movie uh he literally says like cuz he, he's i think it's when he's talking about the um the narration how he didn't want um the first person narration because in the book that's kind of like funny the juxtaposition and how like over the top his narration is and he he didn't think that this movie was a comedy and I'm like Kubrick, why don't you ever? Why do you lie so much in your interviews? <laughs> like, he's just everything. Every single thing he says, I'm just like you. Uh, you don't mean that. I know you don't mean that because this movie is hilarious. I mean, Captain Quinn is so funny. Um, his first, his first close up during the march where he does. Oh the, my god! Uh, sword back, head back. Oh my god! That is hysterical. It's so funny, and the, I mean, the, it's just uh, to to me this this is uh you know kubrick's funniest movie and uh and it's just con- consistently um the 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 way that the characters react to things the juxtaposition of the narration and the and the um and what's happening on screen um and just ryan o'neill's performance i think is really funny as well i mean when he says i cannot find the ribbon i laugh out loud it's hilarious <laughs> Um, and, um, and I think that is another thing that people didn't catch on the initial release of the movie that they're, um, you know, they, they only saw the kind of stayed, um, overarching tone of the film and sort of the classical, uh, music, uh, aspect of it, very heavy and, you know, at times romantic, um, presentation and earnest presentation of that and forgot that this movie is laugh out loud funny can, can you imagine just being in a crowded theater full of people not laughing yeah at this movie <laughs> how like just terrible that must be like oh god they're not liking it everyone's really <laughs> quiet uh, that's i mean that's basically his reaction he was so upset that people weren't reacting the way that he thought they would react to this film i mean yeah because everything's so deadpan yeah it's mm-hmm. it's it's you know, so dry it is so Englishly dry. Oh yeah, it's Python. Like yeah. it's so Monty Python. Like without the uh, without the complete dadaist, uh, destructive nature of what they do when they're talking about the upper class British society and they're doing their little bits. Like that is through and through this picture. Just the way they present themselves and the way they think they're being formal and it's just so comedic the way they uh, the way they hold themselves in such high regard. Yeah. Well, and one thing we haven't talked about is the the quote at the or at the end from the book, the the epilogue, that's basically that is basically just like all of these people, no matter where they came from, are all dead now. So doesn't matter. Basically, all of these things, like all of this importance that all of these people have placed on aristocracy, on being living there, you know, within the strict rules of society of you know, advancing a higher being or protect, enjoying art, uh, whatever it is, like you're all going to die. So stop pretending like you're important and you have power 
Like that at the end of the day, it's the same, it's the same mentality for Kubrick, uh, that got him out of Ireland. Like, it's like, uh, I could make this movie and die or not make this movie and not die. I think I'm going to go with that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why like, as much as this is thematically or, uh, structurally like, like uh, clockwork orange, um, I like to think of this as the opposite coin of 2001, because whereas 2001 is such a hopeful movie about what the future of all of us could attain to and what we could be, mm. this movie is so <laughs> cynical and just like nothing you do matters. We're it's all going to die. It is it's, so mean. It's mean, but with a grin, which I love. Oh, yeah. There's pure delight in pointing out that everything that all your machinations everything you're striving for we're all going to die and none of it matters mm-hmm. and it's so it's so dark and twisted and which makes it also just hysterical funnier, because... yeah. but but i have to say like and i totally agree this movie is cynical and dry and dark but the the idea that we all die is the exact same idea that we are all human and I, mm-hmm. so that message at the end of the movie is just as much saying that the things that we're doing doesn't matter as it's saying that the things that we're doing are ridiculous because we are all humans and we are all going the same place. So let's try to like be cool with each other while we're here and yeah. not pretend like we're better than other people. Um, and I think that so this in a way, are you saying that this is like the first Bill and Ted movie where it's like, be, be cool? Be cool. Yes, exactly. Be excellent. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> they should have gone back right. and pulled Barry Lyndon out for their presentation. <laughs> would, it be, be... would it be pre or post leg? <laughs> pre leg. He'd be on the football team. There'd be a whole football <laughs> scene with him, like running down the field, knocking everyone down. All right. I have one one question. There's one single thing in this movie that bothers the hell out of me. It doesn't ruin it for me. I'm able to just be completely fine with it as we've just spent the last two hours talking about how much this movie is awesome. How do you guys feel about the freeze frame? The final freeze frame? The freeze frame of him entering the carriage. I don't like that at all. It it does not bother me. It's like oh, I had to really think about it. It's like, wait, there's a freeze frame? Oh yeah, the very last shot's a freeze yeah, frame. Yeah, he uses it it's... again in The Shining, right? Because uh... Jack freezes in the both literally and and figuratively in the in the maze, right? I haven't I haven't seen yeah. The Shining in a while, but I... no, it's a it's a smash cut to the, him just yeah. sitting there. Like no, but this the is final like... shot of The Shining is the, is the yes, no, it's not the final shot. Yeah, but I I yeah. thought the last but shot in the of maze. Him, it's a when he's staring there. I thought I thought it fro- it fro- freezes on him. Well, we'll find out next next time. Yeah, we'll find out well. next week. But uh, no, I just I don't know what it is. I think because everything has been so yeah. so flowing and so does like... it feel too much like 1975 to you? Well, that's part of it. I think it it takes like it's the only thing that takes me out of the film. Like, the film spends all of its time engrossing me into it, like, pulling me in and keeping me there and lulling me there. And then that one moment happens, and I, I'm i like, why? why? Like, I know it's at towards the end of the film, and maybe that is a visual cue to, like, we're now back to where we are. But, like, the idea that we freeze him there to have the narrator tell us he goes back to Ireland where you could still have the narrator telling us that and the right. carriage could be pulling away. Like, I just don't... 
like that would be the one question I would ask. Like what like what is the point of that? And that's why I wanted to ask you if you guys have thought about it at all because like that's just the one thing that kind of like the one little thing that sticks out for me, you know, in a movie that has so much just well thought out things. This totally feels like an afterthought and post. My guess as opposed... is that probably since I mean we're behind him, so it's clearly an actor that's a stand-in that is missing a leg. Right. He probably had trouble getting into the carriage they probably wanted to cut out before there but not just fade out i think it would have been much worse if he gets into the carriage and then it's a close-up of his face looking out the window and as the thing starts to pull away it freeze frames on his face <laughs> yeah. oh yeah like that'd be that, way worse i feel like that would be super 70s. there's actually a great story <laughs> like um because uh, they were having trouble finding a double that was missing a leg and so kubrick said to ryan o'neill like can't you just lose the leg <laughs> <laughs> Like in his shot, I, like I can't even imagine. Like I can't make my leg bend the way that he had yeah, to. Yeah, it looks to, like uh, it's legitimately gone. Yeah, they they strapped it to his uh, to his thigh. Like he basically bent it back all the way, and they like mm. <laughs> they but strapped him down. It's still That's got a really awkward angle. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, if I wanted to be pretentious, I guess I could say like that. You know, they 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 pause on the idea that he's, you know. <clears throat> awkwardly climbing up into this carriage on one leg, uh, you know, and that he's doomed to kind of uh, travel uh, unmoored for the rest of his life. Um, I think Kubrick probably just um, wanted it to be a punctuated moment that felt less like a kind of ellipses and more like the this is the last second that anybody ever saw or heard from Barry Lyndon, um, you know, uh, kind of matches, matching the narration, the idea that he didn't die here and there probably was more to his story, but we don't know it and nobody cares. All right. I can buy that. <laughs> yeah, I can buy that. I can, I can, I can eat into that as well. Nice. Um, Thanks, Matt. I can sleep. There at you night go. Now. There you. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> to help you sleep at night. Um, the actual reason is that the camera broke when they were filming it, and it just got stuck in that one frame. They had no choice. No. Originally, uh, originally this ended. Yeah, like um, Persona just burns uh, at the end. Or I was just about yeah, to say that. Yeah. It just the film burns through, and that's it. Um, so uh, around these parts, Dave, we uh, we do some ranking of these Kubrick movies. I think everybody, I think I've already spoiled where I'm going to be, but um, I'm curious where, uh, where you, uh, how you fit this uh, film into uh, Kubrick's filmography. You get to pick from all of your, all of his films. So what, what's your, uh, what's your top Kubrick movie at this point? And, uh, and where does Barry Lyndon fit into that? My top is still and will always probably be 2001, simply because that was the first, and it's one that I can just watch ad nauseum and just love each time. Uh, but this has been slowly but surely climbing the ranks. I think that from going from near the bottom to then hitting like the very number five of the top five, this is now number three. This is like my third favorite of his films. Mm. What's the number two in What's there? the other one? The Shining. Ah, Nice. All right, Travis. All right. Going through again for people keeping the running tally at home. So Fear and Desire is still the lowest ranked <laughs> of all his films for me. Uh, Lolita still coming in second because I just cannot get behind the message of that film. Uh, Killer's Kiss, Spartacus, 
The Killing, Clockwork Orange, Doctor Strangelove, Paths of Glory, taking over the number two spot, Barry Lyndon, um, and 2001 is still uh, there at the top because I just, the message and the themes of that film still are stronger to me. Um, but I could easily see, after a few more viewings, Barry Lyndon eking that out. Um, because this is the f- this is the first time that I've seen the film and fully appreciated it in since I've seen it. This is probably the third time I've seen the film. And this is the time that I was like, wow, this movie is amazing. So if I see this as much as I've seen 2001, I probably could see this moving up that ladder very easily. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I would not bemoan anybody putting 2001 at the top of uh, a list. Um, and especially uh, if, we're, if we're arguing purely on sort of trying to be objective, which is the better of the two movies, um, it's, it's hard to argue for or against either one of those two in, in a face-off. But for me, this movie is just, uh, it's one of my favorite films, and I think my relationship with Kubrick has changed quite a bit over the past two decades or so. Um, this is the only movie that, uh, kind of cements his, uh, importance in my personal relationship to film, uh, guaranteed for the rest of my life. (laughs) Uh, I just think this movie is, um, astonishingly, uh, effective and uh, reveals something new every time I see it. Um, and really, you can just think about uh, the, these characters, their motivations, um, Kubrick's intent with the film, and your relationship to both this world and the movie itself um, endlessly. I, I could never tire of it. Um, and uh, I think despite the fact that most people have not seen this movie and um, most people will uh, put it off until probably near the very end of their Kubrick journey. Um, I think this movie holds up on its own um, very well. Um, and I think, uh, I think would make a fine first Kubrick viewing if, if anybody so, so chose. Um, Soon enough. All college dorm rooms will have posters of Barry Lyndon yes, instead of exactly. Clockwork Orange. Well, it will be interesting to see, you know, within the next um, few years, now that Criterion has released this, um, how the the evolving attitude towards the movie um, will accelerate. Because um, when I first kind of started talking to people about movies, you know, um, in the in my early twenties online and things like that, um, this is this was definitely not. Um, considered to be the to to have the lofty status that it has now um and i think i was very surprised by just how many people had such a strong response to its um uh release last year um and pleasantly so um and i think more and more people will uh will have that experience of seeing it for the first time or or seeing it uh you know, for a second time and and really seeing it in a whole new light. So I'm excited to see it grow in estimation. I don't think it'll ever surpass 2001 just because 2001 has the advantage of just that pure awe and um, 
like you said, Travis, I mean, I think the, the, the ambition and, and, uh, optimism, uh, despite obviously some sort of very cynical elements of that movie, there's still vintage Kubrick, um, will kind of always win out over this, uh, kind of dark portrayal of humanity. But I think, um, I think there's a lot to, to enjoy here and, uh, and, and revisit, um, this is the, the first movie of, of these films that we've watched so far where I might watch this next week. Like I'm, you know, I'm not putting this away. Um, I, I am very excited to, to keep this in my rotation and keep watching it, um, because it's extremely entertaining and watchable for me. Um, yeah, I'd be very interested to see we're coming up pretty soon to the next, uh, Sight and Sound 250. Yes. Um, I'd like to see. I got a f- strong feeling that this will move very, f- very high. I agree. So, next time we will be covering the most popular. We go from the least popular late era Kubrick to the most popular Kubrick by far. I think, like, I think this movie has, you know, over a million votes on IMDb and then. The next one is like 600,000. Like, it's not even close. Um, it's called The Shining, of course. Uh, and I think this is a lot, of, for a lot of people, their first um, Kubrick film, you know, in that preteen or late teen or early teen, uh, like, horror phase. You're like, oh, well, let's go to the artsy one. And you go, you, you pick it, you pull out The Shining. Um, so, what do you think, Travis? The Shining, are you ready? The Shining, huh? I'm ready. That's uh that is I think that is my first Kubrick was The Shining. Um I remember getting that uh that I remember conning my mom into checking off the R-rated box in my family pass for the uh, video store <laughs> cuz that's where my horror movies were, mom, and she said, "Oh, okay." And getting to access way too many movies that I shouldn't have seen at the age I was at. Um, Because she was a Stephen King fan, so I was able to use The Shining as an (laughs) example of a movie that I should be able to rent. Uh, But yeah, no, I'm I'm excited. I've seen the movie more probably than any other Kubrick film, but this will be the first time I'm watching it in context of his filmography. Yeah. And so I'm really excited to look at it with a different, with some fresh eyes and a different perspective because uh, that movie is really fun to watch on its own. It's a great late night screening with a bunch of friends. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And Dave, it's one of, it's one of your favorites, your second yes, favorite. Yes, it is. It is. I love See? that movie tremendously. Dave, thank you uh, so much for coming on and talking Barry Lyndon. It was a real Thank pleasure. you for having me. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah, Dave, that was fun. It's nice to finally be able to talk with you in real life. In in the digital flesh. <laughs> in Skype <Yes>. life. <laughs> yes. Skype world. All right, Travis. Well, All I'll right. talk to you next time. Yep. We're complete for another week.